0: Brian, it's great to to talk to you again since we we spoke uh, just about a year ago uh, and obviously lots has happened in the last year. One thing that has happened is that you have released uh, another album, The Ship. And I was really intrigued by the the, the format of it. It's laid out in four tracks and two of the tracks are very, very long. Did it start out as an album or what was the concept?
1: No, it didn't start as an album and it certainly didn't start as anything that was intended to be vocal or song-like. I was invited by a Swedish electronic music studio in fact the oldest in the world actually to use their multi-channel sound system and they wanted me to make a sound installation in Stockholm so I started working on that thinking it would be just instrumental ambient music and at a certain point I started singing because I discovered that I could sing the root note which was a lower note than I've ever sung before it's a low c And so I thought, "Mm, I like that singing. (laughs) So I started to think of a way that I could use my voice in it. So, of course, I started writing a song. And it suddenly went through a real sort of change of phase somehow when it went from being instrumental, just about noises, to suddenly having a voice in it, to having a a narrator, if you like, or a personality. Um, And so it became a song, really.
0: You're very interested in the voice as instrument. And when we hear this voice, it does sound quite genderless. And I was thinking, I interviewed Kate Bush once and she talked about how her voice had changed as she'd gotten older. Mm -hmm. Has that been part of your experience?
1: Uh, Very much part of my experience. I mean, one of the things that happens as you get older is that your voice drops in pitch. So you gain some notes at the bottom, but you lose a lot more at the top. Unless you're a professional singer who keeps practising, your range narrows and softens and goes a bit darker. And actually, I found that that was a voice that I liked. I suddenly found I had this new, easy way of singing. I kept thinking like, I felt like Tony Bennett or uh, Dean Martin or someone like that. A crooner. A a crooner, yeah. (laughs) And I, I sort of discovered my adult voice in my early 60s, really. Prior to that, I was still sort of in my adolescent voice. And I've noticed this happening with a few other singers as well, that they They suddenly learn a different way of singing quite late in their career.
0: The voice obviously is is the vehicle for for lyrics. And there are lots of very interesting reference points in the lyrics on on the ship. What what were they and and, and in what way do they inspire you?
1: The problem with lyrics is that people always assume that they're the first thing that you, you do in a song. In my experience and also in my experience of other singers, they're nearly always the last thing that happen. So people assume that if there are lyrics, that was what started the whole process and that the the rest of the song exists to sort of elaborate the lyrics, that the lyrics really contain the kind of kernel of the meaning. That's never been the way for me. The lyrics are the last thing I think about and they really come out of sound and mood. So, for instance, in this piece, The Ship, it started with me making an instrumental landscape or a sonic landscape that felt more and more like an ocean to me. I I felt these waves of sound and it was turbulent and rather somber and menacing. And then, as I said, I started singing and the first word that came up was roll, roll. This word roll, it kept coming back. Then I I felt sure that it was something to do with a ship at sea that was in distress of some kind or, or facing a dangerous future. Apart from that, yes, and I was thinking about the Titanic a bit, but I was thinking of the Titanic more from the point of view of it being a sort of herald of the First World War because they both happened for exactly the same reason. They both happened because somebody believed that they were more invincible than they actually were (laughs) and more powerful than they actually were. And the sinking of the Titanic was sort of the hubris of its engineers and of a whole generation of Victorians facing a big iceberg um, that wasn't going to be shifted that easily
0: there is a sense as well that the ship and then the fickle sun piece they're the antithesis of the three minute pop song and you've never done that anyway but do you find that in in a non-album world we live in you know a single download song shuffle kind of culture that these were pieces that commanded that people stay with them people were meant to sit down and, and go the journey with them
1: yes and well as I said I started it really as an ambient piece so I wasn't expecting it to turn into a song I suppose had I been expecting that I wouldn't have made it so long that was sort of a surprise to me that it could work to have a song of that kind of duration for the voice not to be the so persistently there you know the voice appears for a relatively small part of the duration of the song but also of course not to have a lot of the things that usually support a song it doesn't have rhythm it doesn't have chord changes it doesn't have the kind of structure that you usually build to support a song so for me that was a real actually an incredible liberation that i could use my voice in a field of sound that was not chopped up into little time chunks so it could float like all the other things in the in the field of sound that was something new for me.
0: It was also, when I got to the end, I was very surprised where we had these rolling waves of of quite intense music. Then, all of a sudden, I'm Set Free by mm. The Velvet Underground comes on. Why that song?
1: I recorded that, actually, about 15 years ago. I love that song, and I, I love that album, that particular Velvet Underground album. And that song sort of captures the strange, uh, ambivalent mood that the whole of that album has, because it's saying, I'm set free, and then... the following line is to find a new illusion. So there's, there's a sort of bittersweet feeling in that. And about four years ago, I went to see a, I don't know whether you call it a play or a dance, by the Israeli Hofesh Schechter. It's the most extraordinary piece of work. It's called Political Mother. And it's incredibly intense and active. And then at the end, after 55 minutes of very, very high-speed chaotic action suddenly cuts to another song, the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, but her orchestral version of it. So her voice is very smoky like this. And there's something so shocking about that change of mood. And I remembered that. I thought, I want to do that one day. (laughs) So I'd been working on this piece and I thought, this is the piece that I could do that. So I then started to think, what have I done that I could put at the end? And I, I remembered that song which, as I said, I recorded 15 years ago or so.
0: It goes back quite a long way, and yet when I was listening to it, it, obviously it made me think about Lou Reed and his passing a couple of years ago, and then it made me think of David Bowie. Were giants like that, and, and obviously you were very close to Bowie, and I'm sure you've been asked to speak about him an awful lot. Do you, Do you have an abiding memory of him?
1: I haven't spoken about him much because I don't particularly want to. <laughs> I find the sort of people drowning in... This slightly synthetic grief that they have when somebody somebody like that dies is is a little bit embarrassing, and I didn't want to be part of it. Obviously, we had a good working relationship, and we had a good friendship as well, and it's it's finished now, and that's all there is to it, really. I don't know what else to say.
0: The idea of generative music, the idea that there, that there will be music that will be self-generating, do you think that's possible with writing?
1: I was wondering about that. In fact, on the ship, I worked with something called a Markov chain generator, which is a, a sort of statistical randomizing mechanism which works very well on writing. What you do is you put in a whole lot of different source material. You know, you can have a bit of Ulysses, a shopping list, some of the telephone directory, whatever you like. You put in chunks of text, and the generator looks at the text and assigns the probability of one word being followed by any other word and it looks at the text that you fed into it to to make that probability table so it might say you know the the word red is followed um, by fire engine four percent of the time by cheeks 12 percent of the time by lips 18 percent of the time so on. and so when it comes up when it's generating if the word red comes up then it chooses its next word by looking at that probability table so what it does it makes a text that is sort of credible because it it is based on real texts and the little um, poem the prelude to I'm set free on the record is is a text made in that way but so is the music with that so the piece of music underneath it is also generated by a Markov chain generator of course with with all randomizing functions in art what really counts is what you put in in the first place and what you choose to use out of what out of the end of it, you know. Um, so with that particular one, to generate that song, there was something like 2,000 lines of text, of which I chose maybe 40. So there's a high rejection rate.
0: <laughs> when we spoke last year, and obviously we, we've touched on the idea of, of David Bowie and I know that Bowie was interested in this idea of, of, of writing this way but also you, you wrote to each other a lot by, by email. Are you a writer or somebody who, who likes a correspondent?
1: Well David and I when we wrote to each other we we always were joking so quite a lot of the emails were fairly absurd and very funny. He, he was a very very funny person. It's it's an aspect of him that people don't really know about that much but he was possibly one of the wittiest people I ever met. Um, he had a very fast, um, elliptical sort of mind. And he signed every single letter with a different name. Very funny names. <laughs> and in fact, the last email I got from him a few days before he died was signed Dawn. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a typical sort of name he would choose.
0: Um, yeah. The idea of correspondence. I mean, obviously it's different. I was writing things up by hand this morning. It's a different process when you're writing things out on paper and obviously yes. you send a lot of email. But how do you feel about the idea of, of writing to people?
1: There's a few people I've been corresponding with for many, many decades now. John Hassel is one of them. Stuart Brand is another. So we have very, very long correspondences and they're quite intellectual correspondences since those are the things that drew us together in the first place anyway then I have sort of silly correspondences like the one with David, <laughs> which rarely became at all serious. And in fact, our time in the studio was the same. We we joked most of the time. It's interesting that you can do quite serious work whilst never admitting that you're being serious. That, that was the part of the joke, really, to constantly undermine the seriousness of the situation. But as for writing... Yes, I have to say I find it hard to write if I don't have another mind in my head when I'm doing it. So I think when I'm writing I'm always writing to somebody in particular, even if that person is never going to receive that thing. For a long time I wrote to Peter Schmidt, who was a friend of mine in my twenties and thirties. He died in nineteen eighty. And I still sometimes am writing to Peter because I it sort of gives me a focus for where my mind should go and to what extent I'm going to explain things and how difficult I'm going to let them become and how elliptical and how eclectic and so on. So I don't think I'm a natural writer in the sense of somebody who sits down and writes just to the world, Mm. you know.
0: In terms of writing music and writing songs, um, Stephen King has a a great book about the craft of writing and he says that your first draft that you write should only ever be for yourself and nobody else. Do you take that approach or a completely opposite one to make to writing music?
1: I don't have a single policy on that. Some things do happen to be pretty much perfect first time (laughs) round. That's very lucky when that happens. But you have to recognise it, that sometimes it does work that way and you're only gonna make them worse. But then there's, as Picasso said, there's nothing worse than a brilliant beginning, which is sometimes something falls into place so well at the beginning that you don't really know where to go from there. You know it's not finished, but you don't know what else to do. You're worried that you're gonna mess it up. The things that work most successfully for me are the, the sort of slowly evolving, slowly getting better with occasional breakthroughs and then getting better for a while. The ship took a long time. That was um, two years' work in there. I mean, I wasn't at it every day, but but it appeared over two years, well, over two and a half years, mm. actually.
0: I wanted to ask you about something that I think you said very recently, that you invented rap.
1: <laughs> I was partly joking to kind of annoy somebody. <laughs> I was thinking that if I said that, somebody would say, oh, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> but actually what I meant by it was that I remember sitting in a car with David Byrne in... Los Angeles when at the time we were working on My Life in the Bush of Ghosts so for the benefit of your younger viewers <laughs> My Life in the Bush of Ghosts was a, an album where instead of using singers I took voices off the radio and off records and then put them into a new musical context so often they were preachers or singers from other parts of the world but it was an experiment that really hadn't been done before of pasting one music onto another it's been done a lot since. But anyway, that while we were working on that, I remember sitting in this car and saying to David, I bet in the future there's going to be a kind of music that will be hardcore rhythm tracks with people screaming poetry over them. I, I said it because I'd been influenced by that band, The Last Poets. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. That was three young black guys who I think were from L.A. as well who basically sung improvised poetry over percussion, bongos and so on. And I thought, that's really a music of the future, this. And so I had this idea that in the future there would be a kind of music that would be animated street poetry. And I remember discussing this and saying, that's going to happen. So anyway, then we released My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And about 10 years later, I read an interview with Hank Shockley of Public Enemy, and somebody said, so how did it get started? And he said, oh, well, we heard this album by Brian Eno and David Byrne. <laughs> and we were all very excited about it. So that's what that's what Public Enemy said.
0: It must be true. How do you feel about the concept of, of the album? I mean, we don't listen to things in a very linear fashion anymore. And I miss out on the idea of like liner notes. You don't get to read, you know, all the credits and see who's done what. Are you optimistic about the, the album as, a, as an entity, as a thing in the future? I have to
1: say, I don't care at all. (laughs) I don't even think about it. It doesn't matter to me. It's a format, you know. Mm. Um, It's been a very good format in some ways, but it's been breaking down for a long time. You know, when we we moved from two-sided albums to single, long pieces, that was such a big change. People didn't realise, I think, how much of a change that was. The the move from vinyl to CDs, nothing to do with the quality of them. Who cares about that? But... The difference is offering somebody two 20-minute suites, if you like, or offering them a 50 or 60 or even 70-minute suite. So for me, the album disappeared a long time ago, really.
0: Mm. Are you still as engaged with everything that goes on around you? And is it How do you feel about where we are at the moment?
1: Uh, I think we're in a bad place, but I've sort of thought for a long time that we had to be in that bad place before we'd get in anywhere better. I really welcome the appearance of Donald Trump in a way because it makes it impossible for Americans not to realise that their system is totally fucked. (laughs) You cannot look at the horror of a situation that's produced this peroxide twerp as its world leader and think, how did we ever get to that? How How could it have gone that wrong that of all the 350 million people in the United States... Somehow that person should have emerged as the leader. It's it's an amazingly poor uh, indication of how well the system is working, mm. or I should say, it's an amazing indication of how poorly the system is working. Mm. That's what I mean to say. And I I think you know it had to get that bad for people to start thinking, you know, this really is not a good idea. Things aren't working well. So you know there are lots of things that count the amount of money and. American politics, for example, mm. and the way money is used. It's pure corruption. Yeah. If it were happening in you know, Afghanistan or Nepal or, or South America, we'd say, well, that's corrupt. Yeah. That's just corruption. And then if we start looking at the other things that are happening in America, like the privatisation of the prison system, you couldn't think of a worse system. If you sat down, if you got a sci-fi writer to try to invent a really bad political idea they would be very gifted to come up with something as yeah. truly disastrous as that. You know, uh, how, how about it? Creating a prison system where you, you earn money by the number of people that are in prison. Okay, so so of course, you lobby lawmakers, so that they put more people in prison, you criminalize more and more trivial crimes. And prison, of course, is a a radicalization center that's where you groom your criminals
0: Yeah, this is true do you feel that we with with all of the things that are happening that there's a sense we're sleepwalking into things again that we should know better
1: that's the horror of it yes Mm. the most frightening book i ever read was by a historian called sebastian hafner who was funnily enough the stepfather of the peter schmidt that i mentioned earlier sebastian hafner grew up in germany in the early part of the 20th century. So I think he was born in 1904 or something like that. Anyway, he was a student at the time that Hitlerism was just starting to emerge in Germany. And his book, it's called Defying Hitler. It's a short book, and I, I really think it's every, every single person in Europe should read this book because it shows exactly that process of a civilised, literate, modern society being taken over by a complete thug. And you watch the process happening, and it starts exactly the same way every time. People laugh at the guy. Him. Trump. You've got to be kidding. And gradually, as with the Nazis, more and more little centres of power get taken over, and suddenly they aren't owned anymore by the people you thought owned them. In the case of Germany, they infiltrated the police and the army, the Nazis did I mean quite early on Mm -hmm. they made it difficult for a teacher to get a job unless they joined the Nazi party so it was all at the beginning it was all sort of jokey and almost innocent yeah I have to join the Nazi party or else I'm not going to get a job Mm -hmm. these stupid brown shirted idiots and bit by bit the whole system has has been taken over and at the point that people liberal people like me who were of course all doing the equivalent of playing with their phones and being on the internet whatever the 1920s and 30 equivalent of that was at the time they look up and think jesus this is serious it's too late Mm. and that's exactly what happened in germany in the 30s the moment the intellectuals and the liberals realized what was going on Mm. it was too late it had already happened the coup had happened people who have been very diligently working behind the scenes to get their claws into the organs of power uh, and have been quite successful, actually, much more successful than we liberals realise. I th- I think the thing is liberals enjoy their lives and have lots of fun things to do, like go to the theatre and make radio programmes and, and make records and all that sort of thing. And the reactionaries don't have anything else to do. That's all they want. They're very committed compared to us. You can see this in the Brexit campaign. This is totally shocking to me and I realise I've been completely complacent about it. You know I've been thinking of course we won't leave. Nobody's that mad.
0: Uh, When you were growing up you came from quite a working class background and I'm wondering if if you came from that background now would you have the opportunities that you have now? Would you be the person that you are now?
1: Oh I'm completely a product of the welfare state. I mean I owe so much to generations of of socialist thinkers whose names I don't even know who was carefully setting in place things like free education for example which i benefited from you know i came from a poor family and for sure if i came from that family now i would not for example go to art school i couldn't take on that debt i'm sure i probably wouldn't have lived actually because my life was saved by the nhs twice at least um and we're we're quite rapidly now dismantling the nhs I lived in a time, it seemed normal to me then, of course, but I realised it was a kind of unique historical episode, that period from the end of the war to the end of the 70s, say. I think they call that the golden age of capitalism, don't they? And What that really was was the golden age of socialism, actually. Um, it was the time when capitalism and some sort of sense of social responsibility and social engineering were in some kind of a balance. It wasn't perfect but it was good enough to allow for the possibility of a lot of social mobility so that a lot of people from the working classes like me were able to actually be looked after for long enough to establish ourselves because that's basically what it is. you know. If you don't have money, you can't keep going for long enough to get a foothold. I, I was telling someone this story last night. A couple of years ago, I heard a recording by a young singer and I thought, this is a phenomenal talent. And I assumed that she was on her way and doing things. And then about um, a month ago, I was thinking, I wonder what happened to that person. She's working in a shoe shop now. She's from a poor family and she had to get a job. If you're not from a poor family, your parents can keep you going for a little bit. I don't blame them. (laughs) You know, it's not, they're not being malicious or elitist or anything. It's what you'd do if you could. If your kid is ready you you feel is ready to break through to something but they just need a little bit of support naturally you would help them but if you're poor you can't help them and so they end up in a shoe shop you know I didn't end up in the shoe shop because I just claimed dole for six months that six months was enough time for me to uh, join a band and become part of something but I couldn't have done it without the dole and I wouldn't get the dole now I wouldn't qualify
0: (laughs) Are you hopeful about the future for creative people? Artists, musicians, painters, actors, writers?
1: Yes, I am. I'm I'm an optimist in the long term. I'm a pessimist in the short term. By the short term I mean fifteen or twenty years. Because I do think things have to get bad before people are gonna take them seriously enough to make them better. That always seems to be the pattern, you know. In the last century, of course, it getting bad meant two really horrible wars. One hopes that they won't get that bad, but I suspect they might. Mm. But then each time we seem to emerge from those things in a slightly better position than we were the time before. So it's like a little step up, then a big fall down, then a little step, a little bit higher. It's, it seems to be the path of human history that we have to keep having catastrophes to to learn something.
0: You gave the John Peel lecture and uh, you said in that... Art is everything that you don't have to do. So why do you do it?
1: Those are two different uses of the word have to implied there. (laughs) So what I meant by that was that there are some things you do have to do, eating, shitting, having sex, so on. They're part of our survival as animals. Um, We will do them. But then humans, uniquely amongst animals, embroider all of those activities with a whole sort of layer of stylistic things that, really aren't necessary. You know, you, you could just wear Hesse and Sax and you'd be fine, really, but you, we don't. We wear Yves Saint Laurent and Levi's and Chanel and all those other things. We make, we make a lot of choices, which I call stylistic choices, and that whole area of stylistic choices is the area called art, as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes it looks quite mundane, the choice of a haircut or of an earring or a way of putting on makeup, or something other times it looks very grand like a symphony or uh, a masterpiece you know but i think they're all essentially the same thing they're all of they are us playing with style and and i think we do it because it's a way that we locate ourselves in the world it's a way we reach consensus about how we, how we feel about where we are in the world it's an endless conversation that everyone has with each other so when I say we don't have to, I mean that we could not respond to any of those questions. You you don't have to have a hairstyle. You could just let it keep growing and never pay any attention to it. But it's very unusual to find people who don't have those stylistic interests. So I now can't remember the second part of the question. <laughs> don't worry about it. Um,
0: the, the idea that, um, I know we've spoken before about art and science, which seem like two very polarised things and often you know and particularly in schools and education Mm. often people are pushed towards the you know the the stem subjects and you know the 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 proper stuff the stuff that you get you a job and the you know the creative writing and maybe visual art are not necessarily prioritized do you think they are as polarized or is there a lot more overlap than we assume
1: i think they're very different activities i know that since the 60s it's been an aspiration of everybody to reconcile them and to try to say oh it's basically the same thing underneath you know I don't think it is. Now, I, I think it may come from the same sorts of impulses, but doing science is really quite different from doing art. I know enough scientists and artists to say this pretty definitively. The, the feeling might be quite the same. You know, the, the thrill of discovering something, the thrill of finding your mind thinking a thought that you know no other mind has ever thought before. That's all wonderful, and it's the same for artists and scientists, but what the two activities are about, I think is quite different, and I'm pleased that it is you know they they really are different languages. The language of science is about testability, it's about this world, this one, this one here, the one that we we all agree we're in, whereas art is about creating other worlds, about inventing other worlds and having the choice to, to enter them. So it's deliberately not about this world, in a sense, art. It's, it's otherworldly. <laughs> mm. And it has different outcomes. Science gives you the equipment to do things, to make predictable events happen in the world. I would not want to be in an aeroplane designed by an artist. I really would prefer to be in one designed by engineers and scientists, because I know that's got a much better chance of working in this world that I happen to live in <laughs> than the one designed by the artist. Mm. But on the other hand, I don't want to go to movies or hear music designed by engineers either. So they they really exist for different uses for us I think.
0: You mentioned a quote to me I think is really interesting by Jeremy Deller who said that uh, rock and roll was, was the religion of the 20th century.
1: Late 20th century. Yeah yes. it, mm.
0: what was he what did he mean by that and was he talking about a replacement for spirituality a replacement for people not going to mass anymore what, what do you think he was?
1: Well he into? no I don't think so I, I should say that he said that in passing he exhibited in one of his shows a sheet of paper from an exercise book which was sold as and may well be Um, John Lennon's exam results for 1956. So it it had all the teachers saying, um, sloppy writing needs to to pay more attention, that that kind of thing. And it was for uh, uh, June 1956. Um, And so Della, in the exhibition catalogue, said something like a relic from the religion of the late 20th century rock and roll. I I don't know outside of that what his thoughts are, but I I take it fairly seriously. I think he's absolutely right. That was the religion of the late 20th century. It was the one place where everybody had an investment and had feelings about it. There were very, very, very few people who didn't know what was going on in that, as opposed to, say, contemporary literature or even contemporary film. Nothing was as universal as as rock and roll was then.
0: How is your... A cappella group going because I know you, you sing a lot of gospel songs, you're really interested mm. in gospel music. Do you, are you still meeting regularly, singing gospel songs? Every Tuesday. Every Tuesday. Uh, what do you sing?
1: Oh gosh, well, we have probably about 80 songs in the repertoire, and they range from old doo songs to gospel songs to country. Then there's a couple of old English songs like Drink to Me Only with Thine Eyes and Early One Morning, those sort of madrigal y type songs. What makes a song qualify, since none of us read music, is a song that everybody can sing (laughs) and everybody can harmonize relatively easy. So I realized quite early on in my a cappella days that you could divide popular music into two categories, which I call Jews and blues. So the blues is basically Afro-American music, usually quite harmonically simple, like the blues is basically one song, always with the same three chords, and the Jews is harmonically more complex, Central European, often classically derived, much harder to harmonize for people who don't have scores. So these two musics meet in American showbiz, uh, particularly musicals like West Side Story is a good example of where those two things met. Porgy and Bess is another one, and Porgy and Bess is a very good example because that is actually the, the meeting of a Jewish composer with a with an Afro-American musical tradition. So that's a perfect example of Jews and blues. <laughs> um, but anyway, that we tend to take most of our music from the blues side because um, it's very easy to harmonise. Everybody knows how to harmonise those sort of chord patterns. And, in fact, most country music and gospel and rock and roll and R&B and all those things tend to come from that side of music.
0: I'm really fascinated by what you term seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, what, what is it?
1: We're used in Europe to the idea of the genius. In fact, a lot of our th- theories about culture are based on the idea that certain people like Beethoven or Picasso or Shakespeare are the sort of lightning rod through which God speaks to us. Those people channel the divine in some way. So that's a picture of culture that I almost entirely reject. Actually, I just don't think that's how things happen. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there are gifted individuals. It's, I'm not saying that everybody is equal. Quite the opposite, everybody's different, actually, and incomparable in many ways. But anyway, this this notion still exists that there are a few key players from from whom culture issues. I became more and more convinced as I looked into it that this wasn't the case. And what was the case was that there were situations which involved lots of people, some of them artists, some of them not, some of them salonists or waiters or people who ran bars that artists liked to hang out in, uh, publishers, gallerists, critics, writers, the public, of course. And there was always a whole scene of those, a very healthy ecosystem of all of those people and it was in those ecosystems that Picasso's appeared and the Stravinsky's appeared and the Shakespeare's appeared. They didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of a whole ecosystem. So I thought there should be a name for that idea, the, the creative intelligence of a whole scene. So I took the word genius and turned it into senius S-C-E-N-I-U-S. And I I prefer that. It makes sense of a lot of history to me. When you think of places like MIT or Xerox Labs or um, Bletchley Park, for example, they were all examples of places where, for some combination of quite mysterious reasons, really, a lot of great minds were produced there. And it's partly to do with everybody seeing what everybody else is doing and just stealing wholesale from them. You know, the whole thing about those situations is that everybody's watching. (laughs) Everybody's alert to what's going on. And so the acceleration of ideas is very, very fast. It happens instantly. It's like a conversation, you know. Somebody says something, somebody else immediately comes up with something else and then another thing and it builds up together. It's much faster when people are in close contact. There's a sort of synergy that doesn't happen over a distance. I think this what we call the 60s was one of them. Liverpool in the 60s was particularly one of them. So there are hotspots throughout history. I've always thought it would be a very nice um, animation to do, to do this sort of scenius hotspots throughout history, just a map of the globe with bits starting to glow red. You know, think of the early Renaissance, the time when Raphael, Michelangelo and da Vinci were all together, all alive at the same time, actually. And then think of the early 20th century when you had, in the same year, The Rite of Spring premiered, the armory show in New York with Duchamp and so on. 1913 was an amazing year. So many things happened. I dread another year like that because I, I dread the catastrophe that follows it. It often does seem to happen that those peaks are reached just at the point things are ready to break up.
0: You mentioned conversation and it's been wonderful to to get to chat to you again. Thanks so much for your time, Brian
1: Thank you, Sinead. Thanks.